William Collins presents Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. This is a history of our times. This is a history of the pioneering women who defied the odds to transform modern Britain. This is a history of women who achieved remarkable things but have faded into oblivion. Throughout this series, you'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, Bloody Brilliant Women, The Pioneers, Revolutionaries and Geniuses Your History Teacher Forgot to Mention, which tells the stories of incredible women from the 1880s to the modern day. This episode will meet Ellen Wilkinson, Joan Clark, Violette Jarbeau, Pauline Gower, and Lettuce Curtis, amongst many others. Through their stories, we'll learn about women's struggle for representation, not only in Westminster, but Whitehall, the work of the few who made it inside those hallowed halls, and the women who were central to cracking the code at Bletchley Park during World War II. Part 1 When the wartime coalition government was formed under Churchill in May 1940, there were only 12 female MPs. In this respect, Virginia Woolf's beef about women's influence was justified. Their impact in the Commons was slight, although MPs like Jenny Adamson and Megan Lloyd George sat on advisory committees. Engineer Caroline Hazlitt, who had been running classes for women in technical institutes across London, advised the Ministry of Labour on the training of women. Beatrice Schilling's old mentor, Verena Holmes, was appointed technical officer and campaigned against low wages in the munitions industry, complaining that women munitions workers had about as much say in agreements on their wages as Czechoslovakia had in the Munich Agreement. So much for Westminster, but what about Whitehall? Some talented women clawed their way into influential positions. Between 1941 and 1944, barrister Sybil Campbell, soon to be the first woman judge, was Assistant Divisional Food Officer Enforcement in the Ministry of Food, helping to catch black marketeers. Evelyn Sharp, soon to be the first female permanent secretary, was Assistant Secretary in the Ministry of Health. Alex Kilroy, one of the first two women to enter the administrative grade of the civil service by examination, worked at the Board of Trade and in 1943 was put in charge of the Reconstruction Department. Masika Lancaster worked in a secret blacked-out room at the War Office, building scale models on which the prefab Mulberry Harbours used in the Normandy invasion were based. She knew the D-Day secrets, screamed a newspaper profile, quoting Lancaster, whose husband was being held prisoner of war in Java, on the discomforts of the job. All the work had to be done by electric light, Often there were hectic rushes. I did not mind staying late and working on Sundays if necessary. Rousing stuff, but as the historian Helen Jones notes, while women were used extensively to implement government policy and to offer advice on various aspects of the war on the home front, they were not so evident at the policy-making level. On the whole, the civil service in wartime looks very much like the business and industrial world, wrote Ethelwood, reviewing it in 1943, and despairing at the departments where there are no women in positions of authority in the establishment branches, no signs that any effort has been made to use the permanent women to the best advantage or any policy formulated about temporary ones, except to make them the hewers of wood and drawers of water in all classes, 
just as in business and factories where the management is selfish, prejudiced or uninformed. Down the road in the House of Commons it was a similar story, though there were glimmers of light in the darkness. Ellen Wilkinson, the Labour MP for Jarrow, was initially given a minor post at the Ministry of Pensions, but in 1940 became one of New Home Secretary Herbert Morrison's parliamentary private secretaries in the wartime coalition government, a position she held until the end of the war. Renowned for her feminism and passionate left-wing oratory, Wilkinson struck many as an unlikely choice for this job. But Wilkinson had disliked Chamberlain and lobbied behind the scenes to install Churchill. She grew to admire him, and under his influence she moved from the far left to the centre-left, a shift from principle to pragmatism, as her biographer Matt Perry calls it, that was in keeping with the demands of the wartime administration. What was important, Wilkinson believed, was to place the needs of the nation above sectional interests, even if this involved a degree of apostasy. For example, supporting Morrison's suppression of the communist newspaper The Daily Worker and voting for wartime legislation banning strikes in key industries. Wilkinson fell out with both the Parliamentary Labour Party, PLP, and the unions. One union leader said that she could no longer be regarded as a person seeking to assist the emancipation of the workers and grew suspicious of the Soviet Union. She abandoned her pacifism, inviting teasing from her friend Nancy Astor, who took to calling her General Wilkinson, and justified the bombing of German cities with the rather glib, even Trumpish comment, they started it and are only getting back what they gave. This was not mere careerism on her part, but an expression of her growing conviction that traditional hard-left ideas were becoming outdated as war altered the landscape. She was, however, a big fan of the statist wartime economy, believing it to be a trial run for the post-war world. Wilkinson's patch was civil defence, including firefighting and air raid shelter policy, a subject close to her heart as she had witnessed aerial bombardment in Spain while visiting the country with Clement Attlee in December 1936. With terrible irony, on the day her new job was announced, her Bloomsbury flat was bombed for the second time the only possessions she managed to salvage were a few books. Under its predecessor, Sir John Anderson, her department had been criticised for responding too slowly to the demand for deep shelters, although millions had erected one of the corrugated iron domestic shelters named after him in their gardens. Wilkinson turned this bad publicity around by making high-profile visits to public shelters with journalists in tow and speaking on the radio. One senior civil servant considered her Jarrow March aura a continuing asset. In other words, she knew how to connect with ordinary people, how best to dispense what she called hygiene and cheer. She had a habit of producing a notebook from her pocket and taking contemporaneous notes of people's complaints, a bit of theatre that made people feel listened to. It remained the case, however, that there weren't enough public shelters in the cities that were being most heavily bombed. In London's East End... 14,000 people were forced to camp out under railway arches and at the height of the Blitz, thousands of Londoners were using tube stations as improvised shelters, often living there for days in cramped, squalid conditions. Wilkinson recognised this as a major problem. Such people had, she said, become divorced from the habits of life in a way that left them in danger from boredom and lack of leadership. On more than one occasion, her sound judgments were thwarted by government dithering. A report showed that the lower floors of modern steel-framed buildings were practically bomb-proof, so she raised the idea that such buildings, usually offices, could be used as shelters. 
but this was rejected. Likewise, the engineer Ove Arup's plan, which she supported for underground concrete tunnel shelters. There was an ongoing debate about the virtues of taking cover deep underground versus the official policy of dispersal. In public, Wilkinson defended dispersal while privately agitating on behalf of deep shelters, which were more effective, though more expensive and time-consuming to build. Better, allegedly, than the loathed Anderson shelters, which were cramped and tended to flood whenever it rained, were Morrison shelters, named after the Home Secretary and introduced towards the end of 1941 in a campaign managed by Wilkinson. They were reinforced steel tables with wire mesh sides which lifted up so that you could crawl inside. Earlier in the year, Wilkinson had told the House of her plan to have one of the new indoor table shelters placed on view in the tea room within the next few days. Conservative MP Sir William Davison grew alarmed, bleating, May we ask that a small portion of the room be reserved for teas? Much of Wilkinson's shelter work was carried out in tandem with the Ministry of Health, particularly Florence Horsborough, Parliamentary Secretary at the Department. She had helped to oversee evacuation and was now responsible for the health and welfare of air raid victims. Wilkinson and Horsborough were both valued highly by Churchill, so much so that in 1945 he asked them to attend a conference in San Francisco to help draft the United Nations Charter. The pair of assistant delegates were treated as freaks by the media, especially tiny red-haired Wilkinson, though she insisted sharply that she and Horsborough were there not as token women, but as political figures in our own right. Afterwards, she said, We did not create a new world, but we did not expect to. It was really a good piece of cooperative workmanship. Part 2 Women outnumbered men by a ratio of 8 to 1 at the Government Code and Cipher School based at Bletchley Park in Buckinghamshire. An ugly Victorian mansion surrounded by prefab huts, Bletchley was the top-secret centre of code-breaking operations, the place where all the intercepts gathered at listening posts around the coastline were analysed and unravelled. Bletchley Park's director, Commander Alistair Dennison, liked to employ people he knew, preferably from within his own elevated social circle. He applied this approach to women as well as men. At the start of the war, the women at Bletchley tended to divide into aristocratic gels who worked as secretaries and translators and steely older women who managed the offices. Once the code-breaking bomb machines designed by maths genius Alan Turing started to arrive at Bletchley in 1940, flocks of wrens were hired to operate them, 1,676 by 1945. Meanwhile, WAFs ran the telephone exchange and worked the chuntering teleprinters. Most of the actual code-breakers were male, but many talented women managed to slip through the net, including Joan Clark, briefly Turing's fiancée, and Mavis Beatty. This was on the say-so of Alfred Dilly Knox, one of the senior cryptographers who got on better with women than men and so preferred to employ them. Female recruits to the cottage, the set of interlinked houses where he and his team were based, became known as Dilly's Phillies. Beatty, who played a key role in cracking the Italian Enigma codes, always dismissed the rumour that Knox hired only beautiful women, insisting that Dilly took us on our qualifications. Given how much was at stake and how capable women like Beatty were, it seems not only churlish but also downright sexist to suggest otherwise. Beatty's own account of her initial interview with Knox suggests donnish distractedness more than anything else. His first words to her were, Hello, we're breaking machines. Have you got a pencil? Here, have a go. 
I was then handed a pile of utter gibberish, made worse by Dilly's scrawls all over it. But I'm afraid it's all Greek to me, I said, at which he burst into delighted laughter and replied, I wish it were. Bletchley historian Sinclair McKay believes Knox had somehow found that women had a greater aptitude for the work required. As well as nimbleness of mind and capacity for lateral thought, they possessed a care and attention to detail that many men might not have had. Rather than treating them as second-class citizens, Knox fought for the women on his team to receive pay rises, writing of one that she was actually fourth or fifth best of the whole Enigma staff and quite as useful as some of the professors. And on the whole, the female codebreakers were treated with respect in a way that the Wrens frequently were not. Immortalised and glamorised in the film The Imitation Game, where she's played by Keira Knightley, Joan Clark was a clergyman's daughter from West Norwood in South London. She won a scholarship to Newnham College, Cambridge, emerged with a double first in mathematics, though obviously as a woman she wasn't awarded a degree. Her Bletchley recruiter was fellow codebreaker Gordon Welshman, a mathematician who had supervised her at Cambridge. As with the men Welshman remembered in his book The Hut Sixth Story, Breaking the Enigma Codes, I believe that the early recruiting to Bletchley was largely on a personal acquaintance basis, but with the whole of Bletchley Park looking for qualified women, we got a great many recruits of high calibre. Clark was one of Bletchley's star codebreakers, exceptionally adept at Turing's cryptanalytic technique, the so-called Banbirismus process, and so enthusiastic that she was reluctant to hand over to another person at the end of her shift. But despite Knox's efforts, Clark was still paid less than her male counterparts and denied the official promotion she would have received had she been a man. To their credit, the situation annoyed her supervisors so much that they gave her a bogus promotion to linguist grade, even though she didn't speak any foreign languages. It often feels as if recognition of women's wartime achievements was never as forthcoming as it should have been, even when those achievements were exceptional. Sometimes, though, this is because a veil of secrecy has descended, and with good reason. None of Bletchley's bomb operators would have understood the implications of their work at the time. Not until wartime information was declassified in the mid-1970s did the public hear anything about Bletchley Park, and even then few of the women who worked there felt comfortable talking about it. Women in the Special Operations Executive, SOE, the secret volunteer force set up by Churchill after the fall of France to bolster the resistance, didn't have to wait quite so long. SOE agents gathered intelligence, dropped supplies, blew up bridges and trains. Women chosen for SOE roles were trained in sabotage, weaponry handling and general tradecraft, then placed in the first aid nursing yeomanry, Fanny, as a cover. The first female SOE agent to be dropped into France was Yvonne Rudela. She blew up two trains at Le Mans before being captured by the Gestapo. The most famous agent, though, remains Violette Zabot, née Bouchel, a taxi driver's daughter from Brixton whose French husband Etienne, an officer in the Free French Forces, was killed in 1942, shortly after the birth of their daughter. Initially thought too temperamental to make a good agent, Zabot turned out to be an amazing shot, the best in the whole SOE, it was said but was captured at a roadblock near the French village of salon la as she was about to mount a sabotage operation in the run-up to the Normandy landings. She ended up in Ravensbrück concentration camp, where she was shot in the back of the head by an SS guard. Zabot was immortalised only 15 years after the war in the film Carve Her Name with Pride, 1958. 
and hagiographies of female SOE agents, depicting them as heroic martyrs rather than matter harry like sexy spies, began to appear as early as 1952. That was when one of the best-known, Jean Overton Fuller's Madeline, was published. Madeline tells the remarkable story of Noor Inayat Khan, a British Muslim of Indian descent, recruited by SOE's F-section after she had trained as a wireless operator with the WAF. Given the radio codename Madeline, Khan was dropped into northern France in June 1943 and made her way to occupied Paris, where she formed part of a secret radio network codenamed Physician. Even after most other members of the network had been arrested, Khan refused to abandon her post and return to Britain. She was betrayed to the Germans by a fellow agent and imprisoned at the SS headquarters in Paris. After several dramatic escape attempts, the last of which resulted in her being taken to Germany and placed shackled in solitary confinement at Fortsheim, Kahn was moved to Dachau. There, on the 13th of September 1944, in the woods behind the camp's crematorium, she and three other female SOE agents were, like Zabo, shot in the back of the head. This seems to have been the Nazis' standard method of executing SOE agents towards the end of the war. Both Norkan and Violette Zabo were awarded a posthumous George Cross. In the award citation, Zabo's escorting officer noted that in a group of heavily armed and equipped men waiting to take off from the same airfield, Violette was slim, debonair. She wore a flowered frock, white sandals and earrings which she had bought in Paris during her first mission elegant, even in adversity. In 1956, however, the Conservative MP Irene Ward lobbied forcefully for Zabo's George Cross to be converted to a Victoria Cross, awarded for actions in the face of the enemy, for fighting rather than a gallant death in captivity. Ward was the kind of persistent, no-nonsense woman sometimes called a battle-axe. She had been troubled by hints dropped in Madeline and other unofficial SOE histories, like Elizabeth Nicholas's Death Be Not Proud, 1958, that the SOE was so incompetently run that operatives' lives were frequently put at risk. Was there a conspiracy afoot, or was this material classified for a good reason? Ward wrote to Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, demanding SOE files be opened to allow an official history to be written, an objective book by someone in whom we should have confidence. Macmillan agreed, though he was more bothered by America and Russia claiming credit for SOE achievements and thought a proper history would set the record straight. The result was military historian Michael Foote's SOE in France, finally published in 1966. Irene Ward's concern was emphatically feminist, that the contributions of women who had risked and frequently sacrificed their lives should not be underplayed by a male establishment. As she wrote... There was always the fear generally expressed by men that there would be a public outcry against women being employed on dangerous missions. Yet all the time, secure from public comment, women were volunteering for and serving in the most dangerous and hazardous of operations, and where physical as well as moral courage was a paramount necessity. To those who understand women, their successes come as no surprise, but it is right for future generations to know that women themselves desired no protection when national survival was at stake. Wartime popular culture did sometimes celebrate daredevil women. Worrells was the fictional female pilot and heroine of a comic strip created by Captain W.E. Johns of Biggles fame. Though nominally a member of the WAF, Worrells of the WAF, she really drew inspiration from the women of the elite flying corps, the Air Transport Auxiliary, ATA. 
She was a refreshing change from Norman Pett's Jane cartoon for the Daily Mirror about a nubile young thing whose clothes keep accidentally falling off. The ATA caught the public imagination after the hugely popular magazine Picture Post used on its cover a photo of spry, beautiful First Officer Maureen Dunlop pushing her hair out of her face as she climbed out of a fairy barracuda, a diver bomber. But the editor of the aeroplane, one C.G. Gray, refused to be charmed. While conceding that there are millions of women in the country who could do useful jobs in war, he felt strongly that too many of them craved jobs which they are quite incapable of doing. The menace is the woman who thinks that she ought to be flying a high-speed bomber when she really has not the intelligence to scrub the floor of a hospital properly or want to nose around as an air raid warden and yet can't cook her husband's dinner. One of the most difficult types of man with whom one has to deal is that which has a certain amount of ability, too much self-confidence, an overload of conceit and dislike of taking orders and not enough experience to balance one against the other by his own will. The combination is perhaps even more common amongst women than men. Using women in the ATA had been suggested by pilot Pauline Gower, a stalwart of the Women's Engineering Society, who had written a book on women in aviation, Women with Wings, 1938. I strongly advise the would-be aviatrix to wear breeches or trousers. Skirts are uncomfortable and draughty in an open machine, she wrote. Still, some have to work harder than others. Gower was such a natural that she made her first solo flight after just seven hours of instruction, gaining her licence in August 1930. Gower and colleagues like Amy Johnson, who in 1930 became the first aviatrix to fly solo from England to Australia, soon earned the ATA a reputation for formidable efficiency against the odds. As Lord Semple wrote, Miss Gower and her girls have delivered something in the neighbourhood of 3,900 machines to date, and of these only one was a write-off, and only 14 were slightly bent. There is no transport organisation of any kind that has such a record as that. Bear in mind that ATA pilots might have been flying any of 147 different aircraft, had no radios and only basic or broken navigation equipment, and this achievement is all the more impressive. Lettice Curtis, an Oxford maths graduate, joined the ATA in May 1940 and became the first woman to fly a four-engine bomber. At first, women were not allowed to fly operational aircraft like Spitfires, but this changed in the autumn of 1941 when the war situation worsened and the government realised it needed to use every available pilot. Curtis wrote, Females landing in either a hurricane or a Spitfire at an RAF or even an ATA airfield was inevitably a matter for some comment. We felt, therefore, that the less attention we drew to ourselves, the better. Trying not to give people grounds for patronising them was an additional pressure, but they endured it nevertheless. On one occasion, Curtis's friend Joan was flying a Magister from Cowley to Prestwick when she found herself unable to raise its undercarriage. The selector lever was jammed. We were very conscious at the time that anything we did tended to be built up into a good story, and Joan, afraid that if she returned to complain they might attribute it to her small stature and lack of strength, put her foot on the lever and gave it a shove, Curtis remembered years later. This shove raised the undercarriage, but then the lever refused to return to neutral. In the event, Joan manoeuvred the plane into a belly landing on soft grass and survived. But rather than being relieved, she was worried about the reaction of the accidents committee. Perhaps it was a little unwise to use her foot, and what would be the effect on women pilots flying hurricanes as a whole? Would the incident be seized on by those always standing on the sidelines, ready to say, I told you so? 
There was, however, a temporary breakthrough. From May 1943, female pilots in the ATA were paid the same as male pilots. But wage parity only lasted as long as the war, and the double standard on ability endured throughout. The nickname for male ATA pilots, ancient and tattered airmen, many of them were rickety First World War veterans, suggests that despite their superior pay, their performance often left a lot to be desired. Of the eight original members of the ATA's women's section, Mona Friedlander was an international ice hockey player. Marion Wilberforce had managed her family's estate from the age of 12 and studied agriculture at Somerville College, Oxford. And Rosemary Reese was a professional dancer who had toured in Ceylon, China and America. Gower combined her ATA duties with being on the board of the nascent state-owned British Overseas Airways Corporation. She also had to cope with the residual effects of a serious illness she contracted at school. Sadly, neither Gower nor Johnson enjoyed long lives. Gower died in 1947 while giving birth to twins. Johnson didn't even live to see the end of the war. On the 5th of January 1941, the airspeed Oxford she was ferrying crashed into the Thames estuary en route to RAF Kidlington. She bailed out, but her body was never recovered. Lettice Curtis, however, had a long and happy life. She worked in civil aviation for many years, founded the British Women's Pilots Association, wrote several books and didn't give up flying planes until she was 80. She died in 2014, aged 99. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. Bloody Brilliant Women, the pioneers, revolutionaries and geniuses your history teacher forgot to mention is available now in paperback from all good bookstores and as an audiobook and ebook from Apple Books, published by William Collins. Join me again in our next episode as we delve further into the pioneering women of the 20th century and meet more bloody brilliant women. <laughs>